For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1 through 18, which I entitled, Life Under the New Covenant. Now, some of us might be unfamiliar with this language, covenant. We don't use that term very often anymore, but the word covenant just simply means an agreement or a contract between two parties. So we see that God forged or established several covenants throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament. For example, he established a covenant with Noah after he flooded the earth. And then also he established a covenant with Abraham, namely that all of his descendants uh, would be blessed and that his descendants would actually bless the nations as a result. And so we want to look tonight at two covenants that really impact us today, the old covenant and the new covenant, which is uh, the covenant which Jesus is, um, brings forward. So let's look at verse 1 and 2. Paul says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. So apparently, there were some detractors who were traveling from place to place, following Paul and criticizing him, saying, you know, this guy Paul, he's, he's godly, he represents Jesus, but really... He's not an apostle. I mean, Jesus had 12 apostles. Paul wasn't there from the beginning. And so they used this as a way to undermine his authority. And apparently, this was getting to the Corinthian believers. They were starting to buy into this. And so he responds by saying, do, do I need to bring letters of recommendation to you? Since I'm the one who actually founded the church there in Corinth. Now, we know that Paul isn't opposed to letters of recommendation. For example, he commends Phoebe, this incredible leader, in the book of Romans, and says that the Roman believers should accept her because she's an exceptional worker for Christ. In addition to that, we see that Paul commends Timothy in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, uh, verse 10 and 11. He tells the Corinthians, he says, just make sure to... Accept Timothy. Don't, don't do anything that's going to intimidate him because he's prone to be, you know, pretty fearful. He's kind of timid. And so Paul hands out this recommendation for Timothy before he comes. And so Paul says, you know, I don't need this letter of recommendation because after all, he says, you yourselves are our letter known and read by everybody. The mere existence of the Corinthian church demonstrates that Paul is, in fact, an apostle because God was working through him to bring about this church that didn't exist. And so I think the reason why Paul is saying this is he's pointing to the fact that God validated Paul's ministry to out onlookers because the Corinthian church was there. It existed. And um, he says, you know, I, I don't need these letters of commendation. You guys just need to look at your own lives and realize that God's power was working through me. But I think there's a little bit more here, too. 
if you notice in verse 2, he says that it's not only for everybody to read, but also that it was written on our hearts. That means God placed his stamp of approval upon Paul's ministry to give Paul assurance too. I think that's very interesting. So it's not just for the people in Corinth, but also it was evidence to Paul himself that he was indeed an apostle. And I think that's interesting because a lot of times, you know, we face discouragement as we try to serve God. You know, we're trying to share our faith for God. We're trying to lead for God in some capacity. And we notice that people are resistant or they reject us. And so that sends us in a spiral where we start to wonder, you know, is God actually working through me? You know, you look at Paul's example in Acts chapter 18. As he's about to step foot in Corinth, he has, you know, this dream where God was actually allaying his fears. God came to him. He says, Paul, don't be afraid. Be bold. He says, because I have many people in this city. And, you know, Paul was probably having one of those stress dreams, kind of like you have in college where, you know, in the middle of the dream, you walk into class and then there's a midterm that you didn't study for, right? And so Paul was having something akin to that where he was afraid. He was dreading the thought of going into the city of Corinth because he knew that there were a lot of people there who were living in a way that was opposed to God. And so he feared persecution, but he also feared that people wouldn't actually accept him because he knew that Corinth was a place where people were entrenched in immoral behavior. And so he probably faced some of the accusations and lies that we face where, you know, we're walking on campus and we feel this inclination maybe to share our faith with someone in class and we think to ourselves, there's no way they're going to listen to this. I mean, you know, this person, after sitting with them for an entire semester, just talks about how they party every weekend and boasts about that. How are they ever going to listen to the message of Christ and be receptive to that? And yet Paul, despite his fears, stepped into the city of Corinth and started to boldly declare the message of Christ. And guess what happened? Many people began to respond. And so Paul probably was looking back on his experience there in Corinth and realized that was a miracle. That that even happened, that people listened to me and turned their hearts to Christ. And so it was a stamp of approval on his ministry. You know, uh, we may face discouragement while serving God, uh, but God commends us through our service toward the people that we've impacted. You know, we, we feel like I'm not sure that God's using me anymore. But as we look around our home group, or the people that we've impacted over the years, it validates that God wants to use us, that he's still using us. You know, some people accumulate framed ordination documents and seminary degrees that qualify them for ministry, but, you know, these aren't living documents. They're not living letters of recommendation. The real letters of recommendation that God gives to us, that he engraves on our hearts, are the people whom we've impacted. He goes on in verse 3 to say, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, 
not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So he introduces this term, tablets of stone. And if you don't have a ton of background in studying the Bible, he's referring back to the Old Testament law. And specifically, he's talking about this event where Moses ascended Mount Sinai and then returned, bringing the the nation of Israel the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And so he switches gears and he says that Christ has written this letter through our ministry, our service to you, not with ink, not with tablets of stone, but with the Spirit. And he's written it on human hearts. Skipping down to verse 6, he says, He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, again, some of the stuff he's saying doesn't really make much sense to us if we don't understand sort of the broad scope of the Bible. But what he's talking about here is the Old Testament law. And he's talking about the old covenant that God forged with the nation of Israel, where he said, if you follow my law and you obey it, then I'll bless you. And yet Paul says that this old covenant, this agreement that God made with the nation of Israel actually leads to death. So it seems like Paul is maybe a little bit negative about the Old Testament law. In fact, he got that accusation numerous times throughout his ministry, and he explains that there's nothing wrong with the Old Testament law. It's that there's something wrong with us. He says in Romans 7, verse 7 through 10, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful or that there's something wrong with the Old Testament law? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting or desiring what somebody else has is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this commandment to arouse all kind of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, actually brought spiritual death. All right, so there are a few things to unpack here. But, you know, one of the real puzzling things that you encounter as a brand new Christian, something that really confused me was, all right, I understand this whole concept of grace, that Jesus died for me. That seems simple, right? But then when you read the Old Testament, it seems really different. The New Testament seems to emphasize intimacy with God, his forgiveness. But when you look back to the Old Testament, it seems to really emphasize ritualism and law. And so how do you put those two things together? How do you reconcile them? And more importantly, why did God give the Old Testament law? What was its purpose? I think Paul explains in this passage why God gave the law. First of all, it sensitizes us to our sin. You know, sin has thrown off our moral polarity. We we don't see the world as God sees it. And often, you know, we're living a life 
that is contrary to what God wants. And even though it may feel normal to us, God looks at that and says, that's, that's not what, the way I designed you. You know, a lot of times we're kind of like, you know, the guy who hangs out uh, underneath the Coda bus shelter. You know, if you're waiting for the bus and you could tell he's been there for a while, um, he might have slept underneath that shelter uh, the night before. And you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, it's, it's, it's unbearable to sit next to this guy because you can tell he hasn't showered in several days. And yet, if you said something to him like, man, you really reek, he'd probably be like, what are you talking about? And, you know, that's kind of the way we are. You know, we're so inundated with our sin, our moral wrongdoing, that a lot of times we can't tell that there's anything wrong. So when we encounter God's Old Testament law, it demonstrates, it shows us God's perfect moral character and when we look at the, God's perfect moral character, it reflects back to us our imperfections, kind of like a mirror. And so that's why Paul says, how would I have known that coveting is wrong unless I read the Old Testament law, which told me do not covet. And so there are, are a lot of different things that we encounter in our lives after meeting Christ that God tells us, you know, even though you thought that was really good, it's actually harmful for you. <coughs> Secondly, it actually incites us to sin. Uh, he says in that passage, he says that sin taking an opportunity through the law brought about covetous desires within me. So God actually gave us the law to incite sin within us? I mean, is that what Paul's saying? I think it is. I mean, it makes sense, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience before, but, you know, if you're walking through a nice suburb in Columbus, and, you know, a lot of times they have pristine lawns. I've, I've gone through some suburbs where, you know, people are on their hands and knees trimming the edge of their lawn with scissors. And I'm just like, wow, really proud of that. And, um, you know, a lot of times they put different signs in their lawn saying, like, don't step on the lawn. This is my lawn. You know, it's keep away. And uh, I don't know if you've had that experience, but, you know, as you're walking along and you see that sign, you find yourself stepping on their lawn. <laughs> and you just have this uh, impulse that you can't stop. And, you know, next thing you know, you're doing a Mexican hat dance on their lawn. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, this is... This doesn't make any sense. Why would I do this? And yet you realize there's something about that sign that's inciting within us rebellion, right? And it makes you wonder if that sign wasn't even there, would we even feel tempted to do that? Likewise, when we encounter God's law, it, it, it incites within us something rebellious where we don't want to listen to God. We want to naturally throw off his authority. We don't want him to have influence in our lives because we feel like he's just trying to control us. And so it shows us the extent of our sin, but also it leads us to Christ. Passages like Galatians 3.24 says that God gave us the law as a tutor to lead us to Christ Jesus so that we might be justified through faith. You know, some of us are living a life where we are intent upon pleasing God. 
We want to please God through our good works. We want to be able to show that we have stayed away from things that were bad and tell God, see, I'm devout. I'm following you. And yet God's not impressed with any of that. According to God, he holds such a high standard that none of us, no human being, will ever be able to accomplish that. And so when we finally get to the point where we have exhausted ourselves trying to earn God's favor, we hopefully will come to a place of humility where we realize, I need an alternative. There's no way that I can earn my way to God through my good works. And God says that he provides an alternative, that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to come and die to pay off the moral debts that we deserve to pay ourselves. And he says that through faith, we can receive this forgiveness free of charge. That God wants to give us unmerited forgiveness. And so those are some of the reasons why God gives the law. Now, by contrast, he talks about the new covenant in verse 6. And God ushered in the new covenant through Jesus You know, the moment that we receive Christ, God actually comes into our lives through the Holy Spirit. And God actually predicted long ago in the Old Testament that he would bring about this new covenant, this new agreement that would actually uh, supersede the old covenant of the Mosaic law. Check out this passage in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. God declares, the time is coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my command. Clearly, he's contrasting this new covenant that he would bring about in a future time with the one that he established with Moses and the Israelites after they exited Egypt. He goes on to say, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. Obviously, this is what Paul's talking about in verse 3 when he says that Christ has written this letter, not on tablets of stone, but he's written it on human hearts. And finally, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And so God predicted that he would usher in this new way, this new order, which he calls the new covenant. And it would be marked by incredible intimacy with God himself. Paul tells us that it's through the Spirit that he ushers in this new covenant. You know, when the Spirit enters your life, there are a number of incredible benefits that we get. First of all, we have unrestricted access to God. I mean, think about the shame and distance we felt before meeting Christ. I remember one of the thing, one of my most vivid memories growing up in church before actually meeting Christ was feeling like God was out there. He was so distant. 
And there was no way for me to approach him because I felt so guilty due to my sin. And I remember vividly how after meeting Christ, just feeling the intimacy and closeness of just being able to approach God at any time, not worrying about some sort of barrier between me and him. And so we have unrestricted access to God. In addition to that, God actually promises that through the Holy Spirit that he'll give us guidance. You know, a lot of times we feel confused about our lives. We, we feel like we're on our own to figure things out. And that creates a lot of anxiety. And yet God promises through the Holy Spirit to direct us. That he leads the way for us. And so the Holy Spirit brings about this new level of closeness with God that the old covenant could never give us. You know, unlike the old covenant, which was mostly about rituals and laws, the new covenant consists of greater intimacy through the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 and 8, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses... Because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? So again, he's making an allusion to the Old Testament, specifically when God gave Moses the Old Testament law. In Exodus 34, verse 29 through 34, God records this event. We're told when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with God. So he was up there for a while, and the, and the Israelites were waiting, like, what's going on up there? You know, uh, is, is he ever going to come back? They knew something was going on because there were peals of thunder and lightning, and, and uh, they saw crazy things happening up at Mount Sinai. And so finally, when Moses descends the mountain, his face was actually radiating with God's glory. And we're told when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Uh, it was shocking when they saw his face because it, it contained the glory of God. It was, it was radiating the glory of God. Um, and they were afraid. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near to him and gave them all the commandments the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord again. So this would happen numerous times as he would deliver the Old Testament law to the people. Each time he would come back down, he would be radiating God's glory. Now, <clears throat> Paul makes a few observations about this event. He says, if the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious had no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? And so he points out that the new covenant actually eclipses the old covenant, that it overshadows it. 
that God has established a greater covenant in the new covenant. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. I'm, I'm sure you have. But, you know, some evening nights when it's really clear, if there's a full moon, I mean, the radiance of the moon is exceptional. Um, you know, at times it's so bright that when you look directly at it, it's almost hard to look at for a while. But, you know, as the sun is coming up, you can still see the full moon. But as the sun comes up completely, it completely overshadows the radiance of the moon. And likewise, Paul is saying that Moses, through the old covenant, radiated God's glory. So much so that his face shone. He said, how much more than those of us who are living under the new covenant, how much more will we radiate God's glory? And, you know, really, this points to the fact that as Christians, because God has eclipsed the old covenant with the new covenant, we're no longer under the Old Testament law. And that may come as a surprise to some of us that, you know, we don't have to try to live under the rigors of the Old Testament law, but really, that leads to bondage. Whereas this new covenant leads to victory. Think about what Paul says in Romans 6 verse 14. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. And so we see just a small sample here of the variety of passages in the New Testament which talk about how God has basically taken the burden of the law off of us now that we have received the Spirit. He says in verse 12 and 13, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Um, Verse 12, I think, is kind of hard to understand, but the New Living Translation, I think, brings some clarity. It says, since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. Paul was was able to boldly walk into the city of Corinth and declare the message of Christ because he knew that he was declaring a covenant that would never be surpassed. And so, I think this points out, if Moses reflected God's glory under the old covenant, how much more the new covenant? You know, God says that we are going to radiate his glory. In the same way that, you know, uh, filament um, lights up in a light bulb. And, and likewise, in, in our world today, uh, we're to act as lights in this dark world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know, sometimes we feel intimidated by the mere thought of sharing our faith with people. You know, we, we, tr- we try to find ways to evade conversations that we think might actually lead to us telling people that we're a Christian. And yet, God says that we don't have anything to be ashamed of, that we can actually be bold. Because, you know, God is working through us 
in the Holy Spirit. And that he's called on us to be a light that shines before people. He says in verse 14 through 16, But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So he looks at this element of the story in Exodus 34 and sees that this veil represents distance between us and God. And I think specifically he's talking about the distance we feel toward God when we're under law. This commonly happens after you become a Christian. You know, at first you're so elated that you have this close personal relationship with God. And then once you start getting excited about serving God, you'll notice that that excitement about God over time turns into this feeling of burden, of duty. What used to excite us now feels like something we have to do. And what happens is that we we tend to drift toward this mentality where instead of looking at God and all the things that he's done for us as the motivation for serving him, we start to look at our work for God as a way to gain approval from him. We start to take our identity from our success in serving him. And so instead of feeling this sense of closeness, while serving God, that it's a tremendous privilege to be used in his work in the world, we start to feel like this is something that I have to do. It's, it's just something that's weighing me down. And so it creates distance. But he says, now the Lord is a spirit. And where the, the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So he says that our new intimacy with God results in personal transformation. It's as we reflect on the Lord's glory that we actually become more and more like him. You know, people under law typically focus on superficial outward change. You know, you see people who are very religious and they tend to really fixate on like cussing or smoking or, you know, church attendance or something like that. And yet, when you look at the the way that they're living, nothing about them really represents a Christ-like character other than their morality. You know, Jesus criticized religious people just like uh, many Christians that you encounter today in the New Testament, where he said to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites! He says, you guys give a tenth of all that you have, including your spices like mint, dill, and cumin. He says, and yet you have neglected the weightier portions of the law, such as love, justice, and mercy. And so that's what you're going to see with somebody who's trapped under the law. They're so fixated on outward behavior and really missing out on the fact that Our lives need to be changed from the inside out. And that's the way that God intends to work through us is that he gives us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit actually changes us 
from the inside out. The Holy Spirit transforms our thinking so that we see the world differently. But it's not like this passive thing that we just sort of, you know, sit there and God changes us. We actually have our active role in this. In verse 18, he says, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. That makes it seem like, you know, we're, we're peering at God's glory and therefore we are reflecting God's glory to others. But actually, this word uh, can mean to contemplate or to behold. And so it's as we behold God and his glory, as we fixate on God and who he is, as we spend time getting to know him, that he actually transforms us through the Holy Spirit. And I think this points to the fact that, you know, when we tend to imitate the people we love and whom we spend most of our time with, um, we, we start to mimic them in a lot of ways. I was thinking about how when I was younger, you know, I really looked up to my dad. You know, like most people whose dad was around, you know, you, you typically uh, look up to him and, and just want to be like him. And so I found myself uh, copying him and, and different mannerisms that he had. I, I would exhibit the same mannerisms. And I remember at one point he started getting into playing the harmonica. And um, so, you know, of course, I wanted to do the same thing. And I remember one morning after eating breakfast, uh, which, you know, Filipino breakfasts are a, a lot different than American breakfast. I ate some... Um, canned sardines um, for breakfast. <laughs> and I was kind of savage. But, um, but, you know, I ran over to my dad's brand new harmonica and started blowing into it. <laughs> Needless to say, we never used that harmonica again, <laughs> despite washing it many different times. But, you know, that's how it is. When, when you are around somebody that you love and admire, when you spend time with them, you start to you start to pick up some of their man mannerisms. You start to mimic them in a lot of ways. And in the same way, as we spend time with God, studying the Bible, engaging in prayer, God actually starts to shift our values so that we actually adopt his values. Instead of, you know, living our lives for money and possessions or success and career, we start to see that Living for people and for him, loving people, becomes actually more important, of greater value. You know, we start to notice as we steep ourselves in God's word, we actually start to see the world the way God sees it. And so, as we contemplate or behold the Lord, we actually become like him. All right, these were the verses that I skipped, but I think our great summary of this passage, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 through 6, such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but that our competence actually comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. These are, to me, this is a stunning passage which points to how God has made us competent or adequate to serve him. 
You know, this word competent, I actually think it's, it's better rendered adequate. Econos. And um, because, you know, when you're, you could be really competent at sharing your faith. You may be competent at answering people's questions about Christianity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you feel adequate to do those things. And so we are inadequate. There's nothing that we can say or do that's ever going to bring somebody to a place where they are going to receive eternal life. That is a supernatural event. And so our adequacy comes from God. And it's amazing that he says that we are adequate in God. Some implications of this. First of all, it means that we're more attuned to the Spirit's leading. If we know that we're inadequate in and of ourselves, that we're going to be listening prayerfully to what God is telling us in order to serve him better. Secondly, we're not shattered by failure. If we know that God is really the one who's at work here, and we're trying our best, playing our part, then if we fail, it's not that big of a deal. You know, some of us are so averse to failure. We wrap up so much of our identity in our success that in a lot of cases, we're actually afraid to step out and do something new for fear that we might actually fail. And that can actually become a barrier to serving God. Because he often calls us to do things that are uncomfortable. And so when we trust that God is the one who makes us adequate, it gives us boldness. The kind of boldness that Paul was able to exhibit. Also, it means that we won't puff our chest during times of success. We're not going to act like we're some sort of big deal because we know that ultimately it's by God's power that we were able to accomplish this. And so success rather than bringing, you know, swelling up with pride within us, actually humbles us. And we feel this great privilege of being able to serve God, even though we are inadequate. And finally, we won't face burnout. You're going to experience this at some point as maybe a young Christian worker. You're serving God, you're giving it your all, and over time, you start to feel like, man, this is just a duty that I have to carry out. The things of God that used to be so exciting now seem like a burden. And um, it's an indication that we are operating in our own energy to serve God and to carry out the things he's called us to do. You know, if we spend adequate time with God and we trust in him to carry out work through us, then we won't face burnout. I remember uh, hearing an, old, an older, wise Christian say that um, as a Christian worker, you get tired from doing God's work, but you should never grow tired of doing God's work. That's an indication of burnout. All right, let's draw a few points of application. I think, first of all, Break free from the legalistic mindset that prevents you from experiencing the benefits of the new covenant. Some of us might be sitting here and thinking, you know what? That describes me. I'm feeling the weight of the law. I feel like I have to prove myself to God. Well, guess what? If you have received God's forgiveness, he's, he's, um, 
He's approved of you. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to earn a right standing. And so we're able to throw off the law that, that oftentimes makes us feel uh, like we're under bondage. Secondly, draw close to God based on grace and through the word so you can experience transformation. Some of us may not be able to relate to that picture where we are growing with God and he's transforming the way that we think. Maybe it's because we're not utilizing what God has given us. The opportunity to spend time with him. The privilege of being able to read his words in the Bible. And so as we do that, we actually start to change in the way that we think. Finally, get bold about reflecting God's glory in the world. You know, God gives us this incredible life to live, but it's not just for us. It's not just to bless us and to make us happy. God has actually called us out into the world to share this love with others so that others can benefit. All right, why don't we uh, just turn to the Lord and then uh, we can hang out. Yes, Lord, I, I'm thankful that um, you give us reminders like this in 2 Corinthians 3 that um, we need to resist this legalistic mindset that we often fall into. And um, I pray that, you know, if some of us feel trapped in that or are realizing maybe for the first time that we are trapped in this, um, this law mindset, that we would um, turn to your grace and experience the freedom, the unburdening that we experience uh, when we take our identity from you and what you've done for us. I pray especially for those of us, Lord, who um, still feel that distance due to our separation with you. I pray that if we sense that we don't have a relationship with you, that we would receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers freely. And we thank you for anyone who did that in his name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.